Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we're going to be thinking and chatting with the wonderful Francesco. It really was such a joy to chat to him. He is a specialist in veterinary clinical pathology but actually um, had so many interesting stories to tell, um, particularly about how his journey with veterinary medicine started uh, and how he became a specialist um, with his that particular journey starting in Scotland uh, with a, a little bit of sheep farming thrown in. So <laughs> certainly uh, you can look forward to hearing a bit more about that. In our clinical segment today, we're going to be starting a discussion about uh, feline pancreatitis and actually today we'll focus mainly on the investigation of this uh, particularly challenging condition. Right, well listen Francesco, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We are thrilled to have you here. Um, I wonder if you are okay starting just by um, introducing yourself to our listeners and just a little bit, if that's okay, about your uh, own uh, veterinary background. Absolutely. First of all, I want to say a special thank you, Scott, for inviting me to this uh, podcast because uh, I really admire people that uh, are very enthusiastic in what they do, people that uh, are trying to find a way of uh, talking about uh, veterinary medicine and teaching things uh, in a uh, fun and interesting way. That's what I'm trying to do as well. So I'm really happy to be really, really happy to be here. And uh, this is my first podcast. Okay, yeah, it is, and uh, you know what? I mean, it's the first po- podcast where I'm a sort of guest, uh, but I've listened a lot of podcasts uh, um, during the pandemic, but also during my travels in general, and uh, I really like them because uh, I find them a sort of uh, very private moment uh, where you establish a very private and personal connection with the listeners, like if we are all sitting in, you know, on a sofa, you know, in a living room and chit-chatting about uh, things. And uh, so I like the idea of be, be part of it. Tell us a little bit about kind of, um, I suppose, what you're doing now. But yeah, but again, I think it's interesting to know kind of where your veterinary journey started. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't want to take it from, you know, from the, <laughs> from when I was born, but, but kind of. <laughs> okay. and, yeah, I mean, I was born in a, in, in a very small village in the north of Italy on the mountains, on the Dolomites. And um, it's a lovely place to go on holiday, but uh, to live, uh, especially when you're growing up uh, as a teenager, it's a little bit boring, uh, but you know, you you get used to it. And uh, the funny thing, and the reason why I'm starting for with when I was very young is that uh, I've always wanted to have pets, always. And because I grew up in a flat uh, and my mother and my father either, they've never been much of a pet uh, lovers. They always told me, no, you, no, we're not going to get you any pet. So I managed to convince them first to get uh, a fish, then uh, we moved to a turtle, then we moved to a hamster, and that's it. We never reached, uh, you know, we I've never I've been upgraded to a dog, dog and, and a cat. But despite not having had the possibility of having a dog or a cat, some I don't know why, I always wanted to be a vet since I was a kid. And that was quite interesting because lots of friends of mine were like, uh, you know, changing idea of what they wanted to be uh, every now and, you know, every every second or some friend of mine until quite late in life, they never knew what they wanted to do. And somehow I've always wanted, you know, to be a vet, which is quite uh, good in a way, you know, I didn't have to think much. 
Especially when you were only ever upgraded to hamster status and never got beyond, you know. I I think the turtle sounds quite cool, but hamsters like mm, yeah, yeah that's, it. <laughs> that's true. Anyway, so that's good that you were still inspired. Exactly, I was, despite, I was, I was. Despite that, yeah. And um, then I did my um, studies in veterinary medicine uh, at the University of Padua, which uh, it's uh, actually it's the fourth uh, oldest university in the world. Wow, which is quite uh, interesting. Yeah, That's it's cool. I think it from the I think it's from the 14th century. I would say oh, wow. uh, the um, the the university, and that's where yeah, where where I did my my studies. Uh, had a really good time. Uh, I mean, it was quite intense. A lot of you know things to study, but it was also fun. And um, and then after I graduated, I spent a couple of years in general practice. And uh, in Trieste, which is another city in the northeast of Italy, uh, on the on the on on the sea, um, and that that was really really useful and really interesting because uh, um, and it's something that I always recommend to anyone that also want to become a specialist, uh, spend a couple of years in general practice because uh, uh, that's where everything starts, uh, and I think it's important to know what uh, you know what a vet. Uh, uh, in my case, uh, needs to know when uh, they send a sample to a laboratory. So that was a very, very formative and very interesting uh, experience. But since I was uh, uh, in general practice, I realized that what I wanted was uh, uh, doing more pathology. So I wanted to look uh, at cells through the microscope, uh, try to know more about uh, laboratory testing. And so what I what I did was uh, I kept working in the practice, but I was spending one day per week uh, at the university uh, working in the pathology department. And uh, yeah, and now looking back at that, I thought it was a very smart move because uh, um, being at the university, I managed to keep learning new things uh, and also to you know start building up a bit of uh, you know knowledge and also being uh, you know known for being the psychologist, uh, you know, in my practice. Uh, and it was good because I kept a, a connection, uh, you know, in uh, a connection with, uh, you know, with, with people uh, in the area. The problem was that in the university where I was, uh, uh, pathology was mainly anatomic pathology. So it was mainly histopathology and cytology was like, uh, you know, not much considered. So I realized that, uh, uh, you know, I had to, do something and the closest place to do cytology in a proper way in italy was milan but what a shame you had to go to milan exactly <laughs> so it was a bit far and a bit not very easy to you know the logistics were were not working um so i didn't know what to do and that was when uh, um i've been extremely lucky you know when they say that uh, you have some uh, um lucky moment that, that that happened every now and then in your life uh, and uh, you need to be able to recognize them and to catch them because uh, yes they have to happen but you also need to recognize them sometimes they do and you don't realize that they are happening and uh, uh, what happened was that uh, I won a scholarship for a elective project I did uh, about lymphoma that was a good amount of money from uh, Pfizer I can say that <laughs> and uh, sure <laughs> No ADV, no no advertisement, but that's what <laughs> happened. And um, at the same time, uh, um, I had the possibility to um, go and visit a clinical pathologist in the UK uh, that uh, told me 
uh, I, I wrote there an email was Dr. Kathy Freeman and she said, uh, uh, if you want to visit, uh, you know, you are more than welcome to come over, uh, you know, for a couple of weeks. So having the money and the contact, uh, I thought, uh, okay, let's uh, do the big move. And uh, I told to the people in the practice where I was working that I was going to take like a month off uh, to go to the UK. And uh, that's where everything happened and everything changed because uh, I started realizing what clinical pathology is. Uh, I started making a few contacts in the UK and, and uh, uh, I got offered a residency uh, you know, a couple of uh, months after, and oh, wow. uh, that's where the the clinical pathology magic happened. And, uh, I, yeah. Like you say, I think it's just making you know, just going with the good, you know, that good decision, and and um, being. I mean, obviously, you're extremely talented, but also being in the right place and being there at the right time, and then just taking opportunities. So, where did you do your residency? Then, where was that? So, I did my residency at the University of Cambridge. Uh, because ah. after visiting, uh, yeah, after visiting Dr. Cathy Freeman in Scotland, uh, she was working for IDEX at that time. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks uh, at the university in Cambridge, uh, and that's where a position uh, came out um, just in wow. pretty much during my visiting. And so I applied and, uh, yeah, I did my, my residency there. And uh, it was great. So, so did you did you come to Scotland? Was that the first place you came to in the UK? That was that was it in Scotland. Yes. So, well, well, I'm annoyed now. So, why would you not want to stay in Scotland? Why would why would you go to Cambridge? <laughs> which part of which part of Scotland was it? It was uh, so. Um, these uh, my um, one of my former supervisors, Dr. Cathy Freeman. She was at the time working uh, remotely from her uh, home, uh, and that was uh, in Killin, which is a little village. Uh, uh, God, it's uh, like uh, I would say a hundred kilometer north of Sterling. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and it was really in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And that was amazing. If I have to be honest, uh, you know, I have never, I haven't traveled abroad much uh, since then. Uh, just in the uh, in some countries uh, close to Italy. So that was for me the first uh, time I lived abroad. Uh, and wow. if I have to be honest, uh, that time, uh, that time that I was visiting there, I felt like I was in a movie. Because uh, <laughs> I've just seen uh, Scotland uh, and the UK, you know, in movies, uh, and uh, I read the books of James Eriot, uh, and I felt I was a little bit like in one of those movies because uh, um, Cathy Freeman was uh, working at the time from her house uh, that was uh, in front of a um, in front of a lake of, of a lock, mm-hmm. um, and she also had a farm. And the funny thing is that she had. Uh, a caravan in the middle of the farm uh, <laughs> surrounded by sheep and the caravan was yeah true uh, is that where you it, stayed yes yes <laughs> so i was staying in the caravan uh, surrounded by sheep and then mm, during the day when we were doing cytology i was going into her house which was nearby <laughs> and this was the afternoon but the morning uh, that were sort of free she was working uh, with the sheep and because she had been so kind that she didn't charge me for visiting her, I wanted to reciprocate. And so I offered to help her with uh, the ship uh, work, you know, doing vaccinations or moving moving them around. So in the morning, we were working on the field with, with the ship. And the afternoon until late evening, we were reading the cytology from IDEX that were coming from, uh, you know, uh, with the postman so it was very it has been a sort of surreal experience but that that's like you should write this stuff down i mean that's the kind of stuff that would make a great like you know 
that I, what I love about talking to people is the fact that that is so random. By the way, like that is just such. Do you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It is, but it's so brilliant. It what, is. what a brilliant story of like this. I can just imagine this like this young Italian guy from where <laughs> you know coming over to the UK for the first time, landing in middle of nowhere scotland and having to do like sheep work in the morning and then do exactly. i absolutely love that <laughs> and the funny thing the funny thing is that uh, i mean i still have a very strong italian accent but it was uh, way stronger and uh, my english was really poor at the time plus uh, uh, i was not used to hearing people speaking in, in you know with a, with a, with a scottish accent so there were big problems of communication um and that made the uh, the experience even more fun so yeah it was very 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 surreal i think it, it sounded like a movie i think <laughs> they should... i love that i love that <laughs> actually we should make a movie out of that that would be a funny <laughs> exactly. movie yeah um so then you end up in this other kind of parallel universe which is i think we've we've talked about this before this other parallel universe that is cambridge you know and, yes. and actually even more of a parallel universe cambridge vet school you know like i think in the nicest way but it's like a different world you know as far as um, I think there's something very magical about Cambridge as a place. So how was your experience living in, you know, the real life kind of Hogwarts type yeah, exactly. world? Yeah, The experience in Cambridge has been fantastic because uh, obviously Cambridge University for, for, for anyone in the UK, but also abroad, it's a, a really uh, well-known institution. So it was uh, fantastic to be there. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot because uh, doing a residency at the university, I had uh, the chance to... Uh, interact with a lot of uh, specialists also from other discipline uh, attending rounds uh, with the medics uh, with the oncologist uh, so it has been fantastic uh, to be honest uh, really 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 enjoyed the year in cambridge uh, it was also very interesting uh, from uh, a personal point of view because uh, you i ended up meeting people from uh, literally all over the world uh, that were visiting studying uh, so it has been fantastic so after you did, after you had a great experience in Cambridge, what, what made you decide to stay with it? Why did you decide to stay in the UK? But I'm probably one of the few Italians that, uh, um, despite uh, not liking much the weather here, despite uh, not liking maybe the food as much as in Italy. Um, I can't I, imagine why. I've always felt uh, quite happy here and welcomed. Uh, and so... Um, I was not sure of what was going to happen after the residency, but I considered uh, since the beginning the possibility of uh, staying here for uh, longer or possibly forever. And that's what actually happened at the end. I never seriously uh, thought of uh, going back to Italy um, because, as I said, I was quite happy of being here. Plus, uh, in, from a working point of view, the possibilities, especially uh, you know, as a specialist, uh, are probably more in the UK. So, yeah. That's pretty much what I decided to do. So after my residency, uh, I took my diploma and then uh, I moved uh, just a few kilometers from Cambridge uh, to Newmarket. Uh, and uh, I worked for a couple of years uh, at the Animal Health Trust, which also has been a great experience because uh, even if it, it was not a university, it kind of had the similar vibes. Yeah. So it was, uh, yes, diagnostic and uh, clinical work, but also research, also a bit of education. So it was a, it has been a sort of con a little bit of a continuum from my university times uh, and uh, i made a lot of friends there and uh, the place uh, uh, i don't know if you you have been there or not yeah yeah uh, yes i have yeah 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 uh, yes, the place uh, 
I thought was uh, was magical. Magical the mm, team, but also the location because uh, all these uh, buildings uh, in a sort of uh, wood. Um, I, the place I think it's uh, it's beautiful. It's really sad that uh, very sad. It's closed. Very, it's closed. Very uh, yeah, very sad. It made an impact uh, in all veterinary medicine, but especially in equine medicine. When I still speak with equine clinicians uh, and they mention the Animal Health Trust, uh, they all say that that's where good part of the equine medicine, not only the British one, the equine medicine in general. Uh, um happened and uh, was uh, you know developed and established uh, so it it was an amazing institution very you know it's very sad it's very sad um so you uh, obviously i mean you're obviously passionate about what you do but i think you one of the interesting things i think about what you have done with your career is you've chosen to uh share your knowledge in uh, slightly different um ways uh, particularly using social media so you have a very successful facebook community and you also have a very successful um instagram page where you um share a, a sort of variety of cytological um stuff um but actually as i was saying to you kind of before we chatted is that you do it with a kind of slight um pizzazz or flair that i think is very um uh interesting you know and i think so i think you've just created something really special so Tell me a little bit about why you decided to share your knowledge in that sort of way. Hmm. So it it started just, uh, I didn't have any plan. And I think that that's what often happened uh, for these things uh, that uh, you just start uh, because uh, you feel it, because you like it. So I created a small uh, Small uh, at the time it was small, a Facebook group uh, of uh, cytology, and initially I invited all my friends, so they were pretty much all, only my my friends in it, so a couple of hundreds, and uh, I start sharing uh, uh, some pictures of uh, cytology cases I had uh, or um, information about congresses and things like that, and then the the group uh, started uh, becoming bigger and bigger, and uh, at that time that was. 11 years ago so 2010 uh, obviously facebook was already there but uh, there were there was not much uh, uh, scientific there were not very many scientific groups uh, on facebook and mine was definitely the only one a cytology group and it started becoming bigger and bigger and i started realizing uh, how um how much I was enjoying it, uh, and but also how much potential that there was because uh, you know having the possibility of uh, um, discussing uh, cases uh, or sharing information with people literally all over the world. So I started I started investing more more time on it uh, and also trying to still to keep uh, you know a good quality. So trying to you know be sure that the information that were shared were uh, you know adequate and up to date with the literature. And with time, I mean, we went up to, I think now we are approximately to 20,000 20, uh, members. I've just, I've just checked, you are. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, fact, fact check. Um, <laughs> so approximately almost 20,000 uh, followers. Uh, and there are also a lot of specialists uh, as well uh, from different disciplines, uh, which uh, every, quite often I would, uh, I would say they... Uh, add the comments uh, and uh, they share their their opinions their ideas i always try to keep it as a group where there is discussion but not uh, a group where um, you 
uh, ask for uh, a proper diagnosis because uh, you know we have an obviously laboratory for that but uh, still uh, there is still a possibility uh, you know to create a community and to share information and that has been i would say successful first on facebook then on uh, on uh, instagram and uh, that's that's where I'm at the moment, and uh, I don't know where things are are are, are heading to. But until it works, uh, until me and the people that are part of it are, are having fun, I think we'll continue. And it's interesting. I always am interested in people. You know, you um, I suppose similar to our page. You know, we have a we have a brand, a symbol that that symbolizes what what who we are. Um, but you you do kind of you put yourself out there on instant like as in people get to see that it's you that's doing it do you is that something that you enjoy or do you struggle putting yourself in the limelight so to speak or do you or is that something you enjoy that's a very a very good uh, question because i've been following a couple of uh, courses of uh, branding because i was curious about this topic i like uh, all the marketing the side of things and they were talking about how sometimes you can uh, you know the pro and cons of either choosing a logo and a name for a company or putting the person you know the, the face and the name name of the person in front of it and that's pretty much what i'm doing it's a uh, it's difficult to say i mean i can that i can say that uh, i don't like it because i think that pretty much everyone that is uh, you know that uh, is on facebook as a specialist that put himself in front of it uh, doesn't mind it uh, you know i don't think that uh, you know there is a, a sort of uh, probably there is a sort of narcissistic part of all of us that, 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 that sometimes come come out i think it's true however at the same time at least for for me i am a little bit shy as well in a way so uh, I am maybe confident sometimes when I give talks on the stage or in certain situation, but in other situation, I'm quite shy. And so I kind of battle between the two. Sometimes I feel very confident. Uh, and so I like putting myself out. Other times I feel a little bit uh, maybe embarrassed, shy or worried. But at the end of it, uh, I think uh, I think the important is uh, being, being yourself. Uh, and uh, sometimes it can also be Sometimes I look back at the video I've done uh, presentation and I realize that, uh, you know, they were not perfect. I could have done better. Uh, but, you know, you need to be yourself. Uh, and if you are yourself and if you are enthusiastic and you are enjoying what you're doing, I think that's uh, the most important thing because uh, that makes you happy. And the people perceive that. Uh, so if you are happy and you are enjoying uh, that enthusiasm, it's uh, contagious. And make also the other people happy. And I think uh, that that can happen even if things are not perfect. Sometimes it's better. Uh, things that are too polished, uh, too perfect. Uh, sometimes they a bit fake. So I agree. I totally agree. So basically, what you're saying is that you're a shy and retiring narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No. I think I'm, I'm working on it. I'm okay, working no. on it. No, but I actually is. I asked that question really because I think I. I, 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 you know, I, I sort of have similar kind of feelings about that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I equally, I'm very confident in many ways presenting and whatever else, but equally, I'm not sure that I feel totally comfortable being in a Instagram live or whatever else. I don't know. So I think it's interesting, isn't it? And I, and I think that, but I think that authenticity for me is genuinely like nail in the head. Like, honestly, like, I, I really believe that that is truly what people relate to yeah um and the fact that you know nothing is perfect none of us are perfect um talking about perfect i tell you what is perfect 
is some of this artwork that we were talking about that you've now <laughs> delved into this this other thing so um uh for those listeners that don't know so um well you can tell us a little bit but we are combining the beauty and actually this is funny because i i say this so many times sometimes i will post a picture of a platelet clump because it's really beautiful you know there was a i had the picture of like a neutrophil the other day and the red blood cells surrounded it like petals in a flower do you know what i mean do you know what i mean like just yeah yeah, yeah. but i was just scanning through the our digital cytology and i was like oh my god look at that that's just nature looking like a flower yeah yeah absolutely Um, so i think actually cytology is beautiful and histology is beautiful so you have combined cytology um with some amazing art and now they are combined in a very creative mm. and wonderful way so why did you want to do that or tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah so uh, i always loved the uh, art uh, since i was uh, a kid but i've always been uh, a terrible drawer but really really terrible so i'm really you know if i show somebody what you know uh, a drawing that i did uh, you know now probably they would think that it comes from a children of like three four years old because i'm really bad however even if i was not uh, if i've never been a good 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 drawer i've always been fascinated by art and trying to um you know to how can i say to to be exposed to art uh, and to be part of it even if uh, you know it doesn't come very natural to me and uh, also since i started doing pathology i realized as you said how you can how, how a lot of things that you see under the microscopes they have some sort of similarities with what we see you know in you know in real life and um i've been following on instagram on facebook a lot of groups uh, and there are quite quite a few groups that are uh, trying to combine art and pathology however lots of them either they are too realistic so they just try to emulate what you see under the microscope uh, or other they may be too artistic and you can barely recognize what they are painting and uh, just uh, just by chance uh, i came across uh, this uh, human pathologist that is also an a artist from germany she's called uh, the her art name is lamelli podium uh, but she's called uh, Leoni, and she did a lot of uh, histology work. And I found it really interesting because uh, it was very realistic, so absolutely a good reproduction of what uh, you know you see under the microscope. But at the same time, uh, you could they were also very personal. You could uh, notice that there was a personal style. They were very quirky, and so I thought, uh, why not? Uh, doing something with her instead of uh, histology moving towards cytology and instead of human medicine veterinary medicine so i contacted her and uh, she was really excited about that uh, so we created this uh, series uh, this veterinary cytology series uh, uh, as a artworks and uh, what she does also she then um, make these artworks into some stationery so like bookmarks uh, notebooks uh, calendars uh, and uh, that's what we launched the last month. Uh, and I was a little bit concerned because uh, it's something that, uh, yeah, I've never done before. And she didn't know anything about the veterinary market. Uh, so we didn't know if uh, things would have gone well or not. Uh, but it was uh, overwhelming, uh, the excitement uh, that people, uh, that veterinarians from all over Europe and um, showed. And you know what? It's uh, it, it's uh, it, it's fun. But at the same time, uh, it's... Um, I think it's important to, to try to 
how can I say, try to make uh, people excited and enthusiastic also about uh, the, uh, about their their work. I had a couple of colleagues that were quite critical, and they told me that's very nerdy. Uh, you, you know, work is work, uh, and uh, everything else it's uh, you know personal life, uh, hobbies. Uh, why you need to mix the two? And uh, I told them, yes, of course, uh, you know, you need to mm, try not to. In my case, I think of cytology 24-7. But I think it's still nice to make uh, make uh, a bit more fun also certain work things because uh, it makes your life uh, easier and uh, and it makes you in, enjoy life more. At the end of the day, we spend most of our time working or at least a, a good part of our time working. If you can do it uh, with a smile and uh, uh, having fun, uh, why not? You can still work at a good quality, uh, but uh, having fun and being enthusiastic. I agree. And you do it very well, I think. And uh... This stuff Trying. isn't. No, you do. I think you do extremely well, and I think that this stuff is amazing. And we'll definitely put the um the link to this in the show notes so people can see. Um, so my personal favorite is still those stickers. I'm gonna get those. I don't know. What I'm gonna, <laughs> I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know what I'm gonna do with them. But I'm. I, I like the stickers a lot. <laughs> um, through your life, through your work, through the stuff that you're doing now, uh, particularly a lot of the educational stuff that you're doing, I think that a lot of what you do is very very inspiring you know and I think people I'm seeing a kind of slightly different way of doing something you know I think often you know specialists are maybe perceived as being a certain way um, and I think it's quite nice to see specialists doing things in a slightly different way that is still very high quality as you said educational and all that kind of stuff so um, I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about who might have inspired you in your career hmm Okay, yeah, I had, uh, so I have to be honest, uh, and I, it's not like uh, uh, something, uh, you know, one of those uh, sentences, the like pre-made sentences, the, when I say that uh, I get inspired every day, but it, it, it's generally truth. Uh, um, I do some online courses, which, uh, you know, are repeating month after month, uh, and they are kind of always the same, sorry, yeah, um, always the same, but with different people, and still I get surprised daily uh, by people that uh, participate to these courses uh, that uh, they have uh, less knowledge than myself for what you know for, for cytology but sometimes uh, with uh, questions that seems easy but then uh, they are often not uh, you know easy things that are easy to ask but difficult to answer uh, they inspire me daily so that's uh, true that i have uh, you know lots of people that inspire me uh, on a daily basis probably my two main uh, um the two people that probably inspired me, inspired me the most. One is uh, Dr. Cathy Freeman, that, uh, as I said, I visited uh, in Scotland at the beginning of my career, not only because she has been my first uh, supervisor uh, and uh, mentor, but also because uh, she really taught me, uh, as I said, to be enthusiastic about uh, what I do at work and uh, try to keep myself always uh, interested and with an open mind. And that's... Uh, to me, it's uh, important in at work uh, and important also at life. And the other, and the other one that is a little bit, uh, you know, I need to go back a, a couple more years, but that it's my first uh, employer when uh, I was at the university. I was uh, working during the holidays, summer holidays and winter holidays, um, in a bookshop. So doing something completely different, but. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it was. It, it has been a fantastic experience because they really taught me the, the ethic of work. So, you know, how important it is to 
work uh, you know as as hard as you can uh, try to be on time uh, um try to uh, be kind with clients uh, which uh, for veterinarians it's uh, particularly important uh, and so i got a lot of experience and um yeah a lot of uh, important values uh, that i you know i had chance to experience uh, when i was working uh, in this bookshop uh, and uh, i still apply them uh, and as and I still try to follow them uh, also now, you know, as a vet, as a clinical pathologist. So these are probably the two main people that inspire me. Very different uh, in different countries, a different uh, background, different moment of my life. Uh, but yeah. I love that. I love, I think a lot of people would like to work in a bookshop now, actually. I think it has <laughs> always been, I, I always love, love reading and uh, a sort of obsession for books. I'm not a big fan of, as much as I love socials and I love internet and technology, I'm not a big fan of ebooks because I love the, the heaviness of the books, the smell of the paper. And this is a since I was a kid because my mother, she's a, you know, she's a reader. She loves reading. Our house is um, my, the house of my parents. So there are more books than anything else. And so working in a bookshop, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a dream. And probably it's the only other job I would have done instead of being a vet, would have been being uh, working in, in a bookshop because uh, it's very inspiring. And again, I think there is a similarity between being a cytologist and being and working in a bookshop because uh, my former mentor, Dr. Kathy Freeman, she keep telling me, uh, you are a pathologist and she said that you are a storyteller. So you need to tell the uh, vet a story. Okay, it's not maybe as exciting as a book because it's a diagnosis, but I like the idea that we need to guide uh, the vet. We need to uh, tell them in a way a story and hopefully, hopefully with a happy ending <laughs> and with a diagnosis. And in a way, I think there is a similarity with, uh, you know, with working in a bookshop when you have a client that comes in. The bookshop where I was working was a sort of old style, so not a chain. So people were coming in and saying, I would like a book to read. What do you recommend me? And so you kind of guide them, you assist them to choose, uh, you know, a good book. And uh, probably I'm doing the same with the reports. It's it's not as exciting <laughs> with the reports, but I think there are some similarities. I love that. I was thinking as you were speaking, I was thinking, I'm so I, I already, I, I think we're, you know, I'm thinking, you know, words jump out to you as far as what will be the title of this podcast. And I'm sure it's going to be something to do with bookshops and storytelling. Anyway, I'll, 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 I'll continue to work on that. <laughs> um, so um, I, I think I know the answer to this question we'll ask it anyway so you have that option to go back to that younger place where you're making a decision about going to vet school um would you make the decision to do it again if you had your time back hmm. yes i would say yes because uh you know as i said the since i was a child i wanted to be a vet i had uh, and i think these uh, probably other vets may relate to these uh, i have been some moments where i was thinking uh uh, should I study human medicine instead? Because uh, as much as I always love pets and I still do, uh, probably the love for medicine uh, was, uh, you know, took over, and that's probably my main, uh, um, my main interest: uh, the love for medicine in general, regardless of is human or veterinary. But I still think uh, uh, I did the right choice because uh, I think it's a sort work being in a in the human medicine i think it's a bit of a double sword thing so there there is a big advantage which is that you specialize at high level 
but that's also to me a big disadvantage because uh, sometimes uh, I like of being a vet uh, that uh, you can still embrace a different fields so move from pathology oncology medicine human medicine everything is much more um compartment compartmentalized so you you know you you are not exposed 360 degrees to different discipline and uh, probably that's the reason why yes i would still choose uh, uh, veterinary medicine also because nowadays you can still specialize quite nicely so things have uh, have changed in in our discipline as well good so good okay so you are where you are now but then so what about going on from now so we like to ask what do you want to be from now when you grow up no oh, oh wow god um i think i still keep keep doing what i do because uh, i'm enjoying it so i would say that and uh continuing uh, uh the work i'm doing uh as an educator or, or, you know, teaching and, uh, yeah, teaching cytology and trying to share my enthusiasm uh, for cytology with other people. Uh, that's pro probably what uh, I would like to do. Also because, uh, okay, this may be a, a, a bit too deep or personal, but um, I don't have kids and uh, I'm pretty confident that I will not have kids. Uh, you know, I'm not a <laughs> big fan of having, 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 I mean, I like the kids of other people. I don't want to have kids. So um, sometimes I think uh, what uh, I'm going to, probably it's, it's early to think about that, but what I'm going to live on this heart, um, on this earth, uh, on this planet, when I will be gone. And uh, probably what I would like to leave is uh, a good, uh, you know, people have a good memory of, you know, a memory of, of, of myself and, uh, People that people that that have learned cytology from me and hopefully had also fun learning cytology. Uh, that's probably what I would like uh, to leave. So continuing as a as an educator, I also find interesting working uh, in a laboratory because making a diagnosis, uh, uh, you know, can make a difference. But I find more um, rewarding uh, from a personal point of view uh, being an educator. I mentioned several times my former my former mentor Kathy Freeman. The way I visited there was because uh, I just got uh, her book, uh, her book, uh, her cytology book when I was at the university. It's just the first cytology book that came, came in my hands. Uh, I love it, uh, and uh, I started looking for uh, you know her email address uh, in order to go and visit her. And then after I finished my 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 residency, um, she was asked by the publishing company to. Uh, do a second edition of the book, but she was really busy. So she asked me if uh, I was happy to be the, ed the the first editor of the book, and she would she would have been the second. No. So we did, uh, you know, the second edition of this book, and when I received it uh, and I look at it, I was thinking, wow, you know, this is sort of like you know the close of a circle. That's the first book that inspired me, uh, and I was like dreaming about uh, clinical pathology, and then I managed to do. Uh, you know, a book with her. And this is something that uh, I would have never, if I think myself at the vet school, uh, uh, I would have, if somebody told me, oh, you know, in six, seven years time, you will write the second edition of that book, I would have said, come on, you know, it's impossible. And, and it, it happened. So there are good good things that, that can happen to anyone. I think it's just important to, everyone has a lucky moment. You just need to be able to catch them and so be smart. And also I think one thing that really um, I I want to give as a, as a suggestion to people, it's being uh, engaged and methodic and put effort in things because you don't need to be, you know, I don't, I totally don't think 
sometimes when I talk with friends and colleagues, uh, I find them way smarter than me. I don't think I'm particularly smart, but I think that uh, I've been very de de determined. That, that's for sure. And sometimes being determined and being focused um, can be more effective and more useful than being a genius or being super smart. 100%. And again, I, I really, I personally relate to that massively. I think in general, especially if you want to become a specialist, spend some time in general practice. I think that's really, really important because that's the best way to, you know, then to, then you will special, specialize, but then you know, what the people that will refer you the cases uh, actually want to know, need to know uh, the pro and cons, the limitations. So I think that's uh, super important. But something more in general is uh, that it really helped me is uh, making yourself uh, needed or essential in the practice where, where you work. Um, and I, I give you this example. In the practice where I work for the first time when I graduated, they didn't. Uh, they were not interested in cytology very, very much, uh, and uh, I and there was nobody doing it. Uh, so I start doing it, uh, and I start showing them how uh, it could have been a game changer in the clinical work, uh, and also how it could have been economically rewarding. And so, if initially they were kind of uh, you know pushing me away from cytology, then they start uh, being uh, the one probably some of my main supporters of me. Uh, doing uh, cytology so I think it's important to you know find what you like uh, uh, work hard on it so try to try to put uh, a lot of effort and um, yeah I think that will uh, that will help and at some point uh, you know there will be a train that will uh, pass and uh, you know you, you will jump on it and uh, I'm sure that uh, you know you will be able to yeah to to achieve what you wanted and uh, and, and be happy because at the end of the day, uh, you know, we work, uh, uh, we study, we do a lot of things about the purpose of, of everything is uh, being happy. And that's what we need to, I think, look for. And do you, would you say that you're happy in what you're doing just now? Do, do you find joy in that? Yes, I, I, yes, I am. And um, I think it's, uh, I'm working hard on myself at trying to be sure that uh, I keep, uh, um, enjoying uh, what I have at the moment. Uh, I mean, I think it's a very delicate balance between uh, you enjoy what you are, what you have, uh, because it's important, but at the same time, uh, still keeping that uh, tension, that uh, um, desire of uh, moving forward and uh, possibly being even happier. But you sh should still try to find the balance between the present and the future, because you don't want to always live. Uh, uh, you know, live your life uh, just uh, with the hope uh, to be happier in the future. You know, you need to live the moment. Uh, I think it's true. You know, when, when they say, uh, you know, in, in Latin, carpe diem, I think it's true. So live, live the moment, enjoy the moment, uh, but still, uh, you know, try to look for, you know, try to be sure that, that, that things will po possibly go better and better. Then there will be always up and down, uh, difficult moments. Uh, so it's not always... Uh, uh, happy life, especially on, on on social, spending a lot of time on socials uh, for work, but not only. Uh, often, I think they they give you an idea of a bit distorted life because uh, you know things are not always uh, beautiful and brilliant. Uh, you know, you need to en enjoy those and try to carry on when there are difficult moments. Amazing. Well, listen, I honestly. Um... I, I, there's so much there. I think 
I love, again, just going back to this fact of speaking to people because I, you know, for me, standout things that you said are to do with coming to Scotland, living in a caravan, being surrounded by <laughs> sheep, working in a bookshop. Like, I just love that people are so interesting and they don't even know. So it's been a joy to speak to you, uh, an absolute joy. And we're, we're just very grateful for the, you know, for you coming onto the podcast. So thank you uh, very much. Thank you very much, Scott, and uh, thank you to everybody that is uh, listening to us uh, for spending an hour with us. Welcome to our clinical segment of the podcast, and we're today starting a discussion about feline pancreatitis. And actually, pancreatitis in cats is relatively common, uh, interestingly, in in there's been a number of studies looking at uh, necropsies of cats, not necessarily that have been uh, that have died or have been put to sleep because of pancreatitis, but in a, a general necropsy study, and again, not specifically in cats with pancreatitis, they actually found histopathological changes um, consistent with pancreatitis in 66% of those patients, um, with the majority of them being chronic pancreatitis changes. Um, so actually you know, 45% of apparently healthy cats had histopathological changes for, you know, consistent with pancreatitis. And that, I suppose, raises the question, you know, are we or do we see um, cases of subclinical pancreatitis? And uh, so patients that are not showing signs, but have the the histopathological changes. And I think the answer to that question has to be, has to be yes. By definition, uh, pancreatitis is, um, inflammatory change within the pancreas that can be acute um, and acute pancreatitis um, the um, inflammation is reversible um, and and that's the, the case with many sort of acute uh, conditions acute hepatitis acute renal issues you know sometimes they present quite um, severely uh, with acute disease but actually there is the chance that that is a reversible problem. Chronic pancreatitis results in irreversible histopathological uh, changes. Um, and the, the, the difference really um, between acute and chronic pancreatitis uh, on paper is really to do with how the histology looks. Um, but we certainly will see differences in how those patients will, will present. Um, Ultimately, though, both acute and chronic pancreatitis can be either mild or more severe. Um, uh, and actually, mild uh, changes, inflammatory changes within the pancreas are not necessarily associated then with many um, with many systemic signs. Um, and, and obviously, we do see um, patients presenting, however, in a in a more severe in a more severe way. You know, we we don't see a a particular age or sex or breed predisposition to pancreatitis. There's um, potentially some infectious agents that might be linked to to pancreatitis, such as toxoplasma, but that link is always is not always actually that that clear. Um, we know that potentially manipulating the the pancreas um, during surgery for whatever reason may be associated with then. Uh, pancreatic inflammation but actually probably hypotension related to anesthesia um, is is a more significant uh, cause and we also see um, changes consistent with pancreatitis 
because of neoplastic disease and and also actually after some uh, trauma, so cats that have maybe been in a road uh, traffic um, accident. There is also a discussion about, um, you know, potentially if there is an immune component to, or an autoimmune component even, to the development of pancreatitis. Um, and that's supported um, in some cases by the fact that that some patients will respond to immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory therapy. As far as um, some of the other things that we'll see associated with pancreatitis, and actually in cats, it's never simple, it's never straightforward, and it's probably not just one thing. Um, and so we often will see pancreatitis associated uh, with patients that have diabetes, um, patients with chronic enteropathies, hepatic lipidosis, cholangitis, nephritis. Um, and with all of those conditions, it's really hard to know if it's chicken and egg, cause or effect, um, you know, what came first you know and how are they all linked and again cats don't do anything by by have um we, we do have this uh understanding in cats that actually they like to get inflamed in lots of places and and often if their pancreas is inflamed then their liver and their gastrointestinal tract may have changes um too and we do talk about this concept of of kind of triaditis uh, and, and and having inflammation in more than in more than one place but actually, the vast majority of cases of pancreatitis generally are, are idiopathic. Why the pancreas becomes inflamed? Again, there's lots of kind of complex stuff that goes on at a cellular level. Um, you know, activation of different enzymes um, and a various sort of cascade of, of events that ultimately lead to those um, pancreatic changes and histopathological uh, changes. It's worth noting that the anatomy of the cat is unique um, and, and potentially why we see inflammation, not just in the pancreas, but in liver and GI tract as well. And, and it's because of that shared entry of the common bile duct and the pancreatic duct into the duodenum, which is different from other species, particularly different, um, different from the dog. As far as how we see these patients presenting, I mean, ultimately, it's it's the same old cat story where we are seeing them present in very vague ways. They are lethargic, they are anorexic, they might vomit, they might have weight loss, they might have diarrhea, um, but actually, you know, insert any condition and cats will be lethargic, vomiting and weight loss. So it's a it's a classic way that cats just present with disease, um, but these would be some of the common clinical signs with pancreatitis. On examination, they may be dehydrated, you know, they may be um, often hypothermic. Again, that's a, a common um, thing that we see in ill cats. They may be icteric, uh, depending on what the liver's doing and also whether there's maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, potentially, you know, some sort of post-hepatic obstruction uh, of of the biliary system, and that can be caused by uh, the pancreas. Um, they may have abdominal pain, but that may be vague. They may have a fever, um, but but many don't. And as I said, many are actually hypothermic. Um, there are some scenarios where actually the pancreas is is so diseased that you may feel uh, some sort of um, mass lesion in the in the cranial uh, abdomen. And that may be associated with just enlargement of the pancreas, but also, I suppose, could be um, a sign of neoplastic disease. Our investigation um, involves a number of different things. Um, 
radiography might be something that you do in in patients that are vomiting uh, maybe not necessarily looking for the pancreas but looking for other things and and you know i suppose in a vomiting animal uh, you'd have to consider things like um you know foreign bodies uh, as a as a differential but actually looking for pancreatitis radiography is not very sensitive or specific um they talk about this kind of loss of of peritoneal detail in the cranial abdomen but that can be sometimes quite hard to see uh, and and as i said you may um see a mass effect if there is a, a, a potentially a mass lesion there ultrasound tends to be the most useful thing for pancreatitis to be to be honest uh, and it's not necessarily just looking at the pancreas but ultrasound gives you the opportunity to look at other organs as well there's no doubt though that ultrasonography has its challenges too and in many studies it's been shown that it's actually very difficult to differentiate normal pancreas from acute or chronic pancreatitis um and again, difficult to to differentiate hyperplasia from neoplasia. And so it's not perfect by any means. Um, and it's not always hard, it's not always easy to find, you know. So I think um again, of all the organs that we scan, it, along with the adrenals probably, it's one of the um it's one of the most or or more challenging things to do. So yes, ultrasound is good, but there are there is variability um it's very hard to make a definitive diagnosis from ultrasound uh from ultrasound alone because the changes in the pancreas can be so variable other imaging techniques such as ct and mri are probably less useful when you're looking primarily at the pancreas so really ultrasound is is still the most useful tool we would almost certainly be running other diagnostics as well and it's it's about sort of building a picture um rather than just having one definitive test and so running a complete blood count running serum biochemistry uh, and electrolytes is is not necessarily always about specifically diagnosing pancreatitis but actually ruling out other things and seeing what the liver enzymes are doing seeing what the the kidney parameters are doing assessing uh, for the degree of maybe dehydration associated anemia and so all of those things can be potentially uh, useful other blood diagnostics um you know there there have you know depending on severity of disease um some patients may have associated coagulation uh, disturbances but i wouldn't be routinely doing coagulation parameters in pancreatitis cats i think um i would only be running them really if i was seeing associated clinical signs with with bleeding biochemistry is going to be very variable so yes running it but the changes that you see are going to vary quite a bit and the things that you commonly we'll see will be increases in some liver enzymes and bilirubin may be increased um and and you may see kidney changes, um, not necessarily because there's primary renal disease, but maybe because there's a pre-renal uh, azotemia because of um, because of dehydration. So, uh, really, the, the the biochemistry and and electrolytes can actually be very variable. Electrolytes, I think, are really important in any sick cat because 
there's something you can kind of do something about particularly um things like uh potassium you know so if potassium is low regardless of the cause then that is obviously something that we can that we can supplement amylase and lipase will appear on many of your biochemistry profiles um, and have to be interpreted with caution. So we know that amylase and lipase um, can vary greatly uh, and, 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 you know, don't always have a, a, a strong um, sensitivity and specificity for making a diagnosis of um, pancreatitis. Amylase definitely is something that almost certainly I would all ignore actually and and that really goes for for most things I, I think amylase generally gives us very very little information what potentially is maybe more helpful is lipase but I think we have to be careful about how we're interpreting lipase because it really depends on what lipase is being run so there's a particular um lipase uh, dggr um that um may have a, a better uh, sensitivity and specificity for the detection of pancreatitis but again i suppose just being aware of the methodology because actually the methodology of how the lipase is run will very much affect how you can interpret that result but many of the the larger external labs will be running lipase with that particular methodology that may be uh, a little bit more helpful what probably is helpful is the the assessment of fpli and and we'll know this um as a test that uh, particularly idex but other labs will offer um and we're we're looking there um at more specifically um, at um, pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity uh, and that's available um, as a snap test but also as uh, an external quantitative test as well uh, and we know that um, there there is much greater um, sensitivity and specificity for the the measurement or the assessment of pancreatitis using this particular pra parameter but again, not everything is perfect and um, we, we've got to be building a picture here. It's not just about one result. And I, I think for me, the FPLI is most useful, particularly as the in-house SNAP test, as a kind of initial rule-in, rule-out. So cats with a normal result with the FPLI, particularly the SNAP, are, are unlikely to have pancreatitis. If you get a positive snap in-house, remembering that there's other things that can cause you to get a positive snap, not necessarily just pancreatitis. So, you know, cats that have got severe GI disease and, and are vomiting may have a, a positive uh, FPLI with the snap. It's then important to send that to the external lab to get a quantitative figure. But a really useful initial um rule in rule out type approach so if your snap test is is normal or negative then probably pancreatitis is not um your problem but then if you do get positive i would always send that um for um a, a quantitative value uh, to the lab there a, a little bit of discussion about tli trypsin like immunoreactivity as a test for pancreatitis Really, the, the the only reason that TLI is useful is 
to diagnose exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, but not really useful at all for pancreatitis, to be honest. One thing that we probably um, should be doing more of is cytology. And I know it maybe feels a little bit uncomfortable to take fine needle aspirates of the of the pancreas, but that certainly um, is a is an option. Um, I, I can hear you all or or feel you all being nervous about that, and I, and certainly you know I would be too. But certainly um, it is an option, as it is with other organs such as the liver, you know, to to make or to help uh, with the diagnostic process. Certainly, if there was any free abdominal fluid associated with pancreatitis, it, it's really useful, I think, to consider sampling sampling that. I'm afraid histology remains the the gold standard for the diagnosis of pancreatitis, and and certainly in cases um, that are you know more chronic, this this is something you you may consider doing. Actually, pancreatic biopsy is not a massively high risk procedure, um, and that's been demonstrated in, in a number of studies. I think we have to re- remember that the there may be multifocal or or not not necessarily diffuse changes throughout the whole of the pancreas. So making sure that your biopsies are representative and doing more than one biopsy is recommended. Um, interestingly, we know from studies that if you are only going to do one biopsy, then the biopsy that's probably most useful is the left lobe of the pancreas. Um, and again, these pancreases is that a word? Um, don't always look grossly one way or the other. So um, just because you you go and do the X-lap and the pancreas looks normal, if you have a high suspicion of pancre- pancreatitis, then I would definitely still recommend biopsying. Just a so we'll we'll wrap up there today. I kind of whiz through the the diagnostic steps, and we'll talk a little bit more about treatment next time. Just to to highlight that there is a really nice um, ACVIM consensus statement on feline pancreatitis um, uh, in JVIM. Uh, JVIM or the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine is open access, so that's freely available. So I would definitely um, recommend that as some bedtime reading. So we'll finish up there today, and next time we'll chat through some of the treatment options for our feline pancreatitis cases. A massive thank you again to Francesco for joining us today Um, and as always I want to say a massive thank you to you for not only listening but just um, supporting us um, uh, you know through the podcast we really truly truly uh, appreciate it. Uh, To find out more about VTX and what we do, then head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. And we've popped uh, a bit of information about all the amazing things that Francesco does in our uh, podcast show notes as well. With that all being said, I um, thank you again and I look forward to, to seeing you all next time.